asked me to take one of these books that you've been studying this quarter or whatever it is, term. Um, I, I'll just tell you a bit about myself. I um, am on the faculty with Abilene Christian University. I taught there for a number of years and then came and worked with Lipscomb for a few years and now I'm back with them in a, one of their online marriage and family therapy programs. So do that and then on the side I am CEO of a nonprofit, SELA Center for Spiritual Formation. So through that we train spiritual directors and it offers a lot of online courses in the disciplines and um, mainly the Christian spiritual disciplines, Enneagram, some of the monastic orders people are interested in. And so those are all online. Just got off a week of starting a new cohort of um, people in training for spiritual direction. I'm kind of on that high still. It was a wonderful group. Just incredible people that come together who we actually look for people who God's given the gift and then we help them be intentional with that gift. It's just rich, rich time. So you got me as I'm riding that wave still. Um, Patrick asked uh, me to talk. Oh, wait a minute. That is supposed to read these announcements. <laughs> uh, family news, artists call for Otter Creek's first thematic art show. <coughs> artists of all ages and abilities are invited to contem contemplate the theme, Worship Is. Please submit one ready-to-hang work, That's cool. 25 pounds or less, to Emily Bruff by July 31st. So if you want to know more about that, you can come read this after. This Wednesday night, July 31, is Food Truck Fellowship. 6 to 8 p.m. in the South Parking Lot. Food Truck will be cost-loaded burgers in California. <laughs> Drinks and desserts provided by OC. And family prayer concerns, we extend sympathy to Fred Ewing, Jan Ewing, and their families in the loss of Bob Ewing. I love that man. Who passed away July 27. Services were held on July 25th. Congratulations to Mallory and Tim Wickliffe on the birth of their daughter, Ivor Rose, who was born July 18th. Congratulations to Ben and Catherine Killian on the birth of their twin daughters, Emerson Ann and Elise James, born on July 19th. Then congratulations to Cameron and Amy Hunt on the birth of their son, Thomas Grady Hunt, who was born on July 23rd. So, um, so we're going to talk today about um, First John, the book of First John. So I want to read just a portion of it. And so if you'll turn to First John 4... Seven. And we're kind of going to go just down the rows and read a verse, and the next person will read a verse until we get to the end of that chapter, um, verse 21. So would you mind starting with verse 7? First John 4, 7. <coughs> Dear friends, let us love 
one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an eternity sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sisters, whom he has seen cannot love whom he has not seen. And we have this command in him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Okay, I chose that as a kind of example from the book. That, um, did you hear how many times the word love came up in there? 27 times actually in that, those 14 verses. So really, the heart of 1 John is about love of God. And how do we come first to know this depth of love that God loves us without measure, but it's out of our comprehension? And then second, how do we live into this love in a hurting world? So let me start with a story. Um, Brother Moody, who started the Moody Bible Institute, um, he was a pastor of a huge church when he was young. And it was going really well, it was growing, everything was just positive, um, seemingly perfect. Well, these two elderly women came to him one day and said, Brother Moody, God has put on our hearts separately, but on both our hearts, that you need to pray for a deeper understanding of God's love. And he said, well, thank you, sisters. And sent them on their way and um, was a little uh, put off. Look, look at this. How I am living God's love. Look how successful this church is. Everything's going well. Isn't that about God's love? Of course I know God's love. But the Spirit kept working on him, and a few days later he thought, why am I fighting that? What a beautiful thing to pray. So he started praying this prayer, God, help me know your love in a deeper way. 
And he said, in retrospect, looking back over that time, he said, after a while, I had to say, stay your hand, Lord, it's too much. And he said, before in my ministry, my very successful ministry, where I was carrying bucket loads of love out of my own initiative and good talents, he said, after that time, I became washed away in this river of God's love. He said, I became a conduit of that love rather than just carrying my own bucket loads. And to me, in essence, that's what this book is about. It's about knowing God's love at that depth of level and then living it out, not of our own initiative. Of course, we bring all our talents and our full selves to the ministry, but it's letting God use our gifts and show his love through it. So um, there's a phrase, we are the flutes through whom the breath of God must pass. And so of course, all of us is there, but it's God working through us. So that is John's purpose here. And he says there's two aspects two participations in bringing us to this depth of union with God, where we come to know God's love at a deeper and deeper level. And we never fully understand it, of course. Uh, maybe uh, when we're face-to-face -face with God, but, but we can deepen this up. And so Christ has a role in this, and we have a role in it. So Christ's role is this atoning work providing salvation through faith. So we recognize this immense love given through his gift of himself, coming to earth, living this life of busy ministry, and then ultimately giving himself for us. And I am, um, every year I go on this eight-day silent retreat and I have a, a Jesuit who directs me, and I just love this. I always go to the same place, to a Mobile, Alabama, and to a Jesuit university, but I stay in their little guest house, and Father Viscardi, this little Italian man, um, directs me. And so I was on one of these retreats, and there's always a pattern in this, that at the beginning it takes a while to really be there, to let go of what I'm carrying from work or family or relationships, you know, just let go of that. But then when I get there, it's kind of first this, it almost feels like a wire brush scrubbing, kind of good to cleansing but kind of hurts, where God's bringing to the surface some of the things I haven't wanted to deal with. So sometimes I kind of know what those things are, and I approach those retreats with a bit of trepidation. But simultaneously is this just wrapping God's arms around me and being loved. And sometimes I'll go to these with a decision I want to make, but often I get the sense that God says, no, you just need to be loved. But as I leave, things seem to have fallen into place. And either those problems aren't as huge, or um, 
and just see, thinking more clearly. So I'm able to navigate it. Sometimes God gives me an answer, but that's less often. So this one time, um, I was going and Father Viscardi had said, I can't even remember what the issue was about, but he said, you know, I want you to take that to Jesus. I want you to pray to Jesus. Okay, and, and so I tried. And I couldn't. There's like this negative feeling that every time I would try to talk to Jesus, I just felt in knots. And so I, after a while, I went back and said, I can't. And I just feel, I feel this guilt when I think of Jesus. And I said, I think it's coming from all my life, every every week I would just have this immense guilt on what I did to Jesus and crucifying him. He died for my sin. He said this negative emotion about Jesus and he said, oh, you evangelicals. <laughs> you think when Jesus thinks about it that that's what he thinks about? No. He said, that was a victory. So when Jesus thinks about that time, he thinks about that love he was giving to you and and the what he was inviting you into. <clears throat> and that was a very freeing thing for me to kind of shift my focus from the guilt of nailing him to the cross to this wonderful blessing of, you know, of course, this that was the culmination, that in the resurrection of why God came to earth um, to give me this gift of love. And so that was kind of a reorientation to me for Jesus. So that's what Jesus brings to this equation. He brings this immense offering of love um, to welcome us into union with Him and the Father. And so that's what John is talking about here in his book. And then um, our role, uh, he lists a number of different characteristics, and it's kind of a fruit of the spirit thing. But we, there's, we play a part in this, so it's not we're just passive participants in this relationship. But there's some things that John talks about here, and so I'm gonna list them. So one is holiness living lives of holiness, that we are set apart, our pe we are people set apart. Our lives are sacred. They're sacred living into the love and relationship of God. Um, what often happens with we, us as people of faith, believers in God and Christ, is that we live as Parker Palmer used the phrase, functional atheists that you can't really tell a difference between us and the person who may be right beside us who has no faith in God. We have the same anxieties, the same frustrations, um, the same worry, some road rage, you know, <laughs> go down the list. And so this holiness, this same live in this sacred set-apart way that your lives are different than the world. You show, people can see something different in you. I had this experience once, I was on a, 
state board in Texas, and I was on this board about 10 years total, but when I first came on, they did not like Christians, uh, especially, um, well, not just church Christ, but more, more on the fundamental side of Christians. And, and um, I had to live with that for a few years, and eventually, and I'm certainly not holding myself as a the example, but they finally got to know me and started realizing, okay, this is an equitable person, which how sad the world thinks that sometimes. But this is a person who cares about me and I can ask them to pray for my wife when she has cancer. I can have a good time with her. <laughs> and so that's an example of what it means. We just live in a different way that we love. You know, we are people of love, and that sets us apart. Another, another is um, we live lives of obedience. And this, of course, doesn't mean that we get everything right, but it means that's our desire. Thomas Merck says that it's the desire that God loves in us, not, a, not that we're getting it all exactly right. But there was a, a church father by the name of Benedict of Nursia. He lived in the six, seven hundreds. And he wrote a rule of life for the monastic communities. And in this rule, it was, it was basically how to live in community. So how to pray, how to be in scripture, how to eat together, how when to go to sleep, you know, just all these rules about um, being together in community. But at the heart of this was a, a chapter on humility. And this is a pretty small little work, but so having a whole chapter devoted to humility was pretty significant. But he equated humility with the spiritual journey. And that the farther along you are on the journey, the more um, the more humble you become. And he used the analogy of a ladder. It's hard for everybody to see but and he said, so on the spiritual journey, you know, we're growing in this relationship with God, but we're also growing in humility. But it's less a you know, straight shot up and more of a spiral where we gradually are moving up, but we kind of dip, dip back in the other ones at times. But he said at the bottom of this ladder, our focus is on ourselves to know God and come into relationship with God. And that makes sense, right? I mean, why would I be in relationship with God if I wasn't getting something out of it? So, it's first, there's something in this for me. So, it starts on our journey there. But as we continue to be in relationship with God and try to live into this life, 
we progress up this ladder and our focus starts to shift away from us to other people. So as we are reaping the benefits of this relationship with God, we're not alone. We have and all these things. We want to invite others into this. So we start to reach out to people we love and people in the community. But ultimately, as we continue this, our focus, hopefully, if we're progressing, centers on God. And it becomes about God. Um, my life becomes about God rather than where I started about myself. Um, so let me uh, give an example of this. So I'm talking about obedience here. But, um, when we were younger, <laughs> um, you were in ministry. My husband was in ministry. And we were at a, a small church in Nebraska, and um, we had a two-year-old. And I was pregnant with our second, and she died in silver. So I didn't know what to do with that. I've been faithful. I've been in the church all my life. Um, my dad was a pe preacher, so I was a PK. And I had my first home had actually been in the basement of the church building. Um, so I had tried to be who God wanted me to be. And I couldn't get my mind around why God would let that happen. I didn't think God caused the death, but God is God. God could have prevented it. So I decided, you know, God doesn't deserve me. Pushed away from God. And for three years, I walked alone. And so it was tricky as a minister's wife. Mm -hmm. So I could play the game, though. I could do the Bible studies and you know, all the things minister's wives do. And no one really knew um, but me and God. But what brought me back to God after three years was the loneliness. And I realized that the only thing worse than going through that was going through it without God. And so I decided there's a, a marker in my life that God's not my servant, I'm God's servant. And so I decided at that point, I'm going to live my life trying to be part of what God's doing in this world. I was still my head. So I had some pretty intense talks with God, but decided I'm going to hang on to God. And so it was a shift for me, and certainly I've not always done it well and dipped down many times. But it's deciding in, in this role of, in our relationship with God, that I'm going to do what I can to be obedient and be part of what God's doing in this world. So again, that shift of orientation. Was your husband aware of that? He wasn't of the depth of the pain. Um, and he grieved in his own way. So we kind of did it differently. He said, um, do you want to say anything? Did you know it? Probably what you said, not, not 
probably not to the extent of your distress or your distancing from God in your life, but I probably wasn't. Yeah. Um, by the way, I've kind of been running 100 miles an hour. Please feel free to stop me if you have any. So we can pause right there. Any thoughts on all this? Comments? Jokes? <laughs> Bad jokes. I was preaching, uh, I'm a missionary in Ukraine, so I was preaching oh. to a group of ladies this morning uh, out of 3rd John. And there's some great irony there when he talks about the Atropes who love to have the preeminence. When John was younger, he loved to have the preeminence. In fact, mm -hmm. one of the most famous stories in the Gospel is when James and John torched their mother, or either agree with their mother, I'm not sure which way that went, um, to ask <laughs> Jesus to let them sit on the left and the right. right. And so, you know, and Jesus had to tell them one time, you know, you guys go get us a hotel room. They came back and said they wouldn't give us a room, so let's call down fire from heaven like Elijah and burn the whole place up. So, you know, to, to hear him say, this guy loved preeminence, and, you know, perfect right. love cast out fear and all that, shows you some of the journey that he had made yeah. over years. And I'm sure that part of the journey had to do with the very difficult places, uh, like where you went through. Because I, th I think those are the times when we when we finally come clean with God and sometimes with others. Yeah. And we of course fight against those in the moment, but looking back, those are the times. Would you say what you mean by preeminence? Um, well, it was not my word, it was John's. He yeah. wanted to be the most important in the room, I think, to, to be the, the lever of power. In this case, he was in a church. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to be the lever of power in the church. Uh, I think when James and John asked to be on the right and left of Jesus' hand, they were not saying, we want to be you. They recognized that Jesus was most important. They just wanted to be... Favorite. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to be the most important next to Jesus. But, so maybe something about the spiraling up the ladder is a... Let me see, yes. You know, his growth in from... Yeah. This is about me to... I'm sure he had a moment... Books. I'm sure John had a moment when James died. Why why did James die? Why didn't Jesus take care of him? So I'm sure that he thought long and hard about you will drink the cup of the drink because they very flippantly said, Sure, we can do that. And it's one thing to, to say that, you know, on a on a nice sunny uh, Saturday. It's a whole different thing to say when the storms are breaking and it does happen. Other thoughts or comments? Yeah, I do think your comment about coming to the realization that uh, God isn't my servant, I'm God's servant, uh, is terribly important because some, some of our enmity seems to present mm -hmm. God as our servant. And it's very subtle sometimes, mm -hmm. or it could just be misinterpreted. If God helped me, um, can be either one of those. You know, where I'm God's servant or God is my servant, um, depending on how we want to read those. And so, um, especially in kind of our capitalistic, I gotta be number one, and living in such a technological age where, you know, we got this, you know. Uh, and it's in those areas where we don't got, where you're like, you know, help me out here. Right. You know? 
that that's a that's a vitally important reminder. And that's been a shift in the church there. Well, especially in the Western church, that um, a lot of the writings on spiritual formation, especially the com- contemporary ones, are about how it benefits us. But the more ancient ones talk about entering into what what God is doing. So it's a very subtle subtle message. Another um, I want to talk about is. Well, I want to come back to this idea of love. And, you know, so we know, of course we know, God wants us to enter into this and, and be this in the world. But we often, and this goes back to um, our individualistic society, pull yourselves up by the bootstraps thing, we feel that I need to do this by willpower rather than, you know, getting back to moody, being that conduit of God's love. So the next question is, well, how? You know, I try and try and try, you know, like Paul says, but I don't, um, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I, I know to do. And that's where we go back to the life of Jesus and look at the practices of Jesus. So one thing, um, well, let me just have you guys help me a bit. Um, somebody turn to Mark the one thirty-five, and somebody turn, say, raise your hand if you're going to be that person. Please find me Mark. Okay, somebody go to Luke six twelve. I got that. And how about you go to Matthew 14, 23? Okay, just say a little bit about what's happening around it and then read that. Mark 1, 35. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was Jesus praying. He had just driven out demons, healed Mary. Pretty full day. Yeah, a lot going on. So he got up early in the morning while it was still dark. Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Okay. So it was busy in the day. Instead of dropping into bed, he goes to a solitary, or he gets up in the morning and goes to a solitary. Early in the morning, yep. Okay. Same thing, what's going on around Um, Jesus is becoming a popular teacher, and so there are followers, and there are people who definitely don't want to follow and are opposed to him, the religious leaders specifically. And verse 12 says, uh, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And then the next morning he was going to meet this dwelling with his After busy life, spent the whole night in prayer before this important decision. Okay. okay. So John the Baptist had just died, and Jesus went to withdraw to be alone, but saw crowds in need and had compassion and fed the 5,000 and killed them. Um, was about to walk on the water, and the verse says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When the evening came, he was no one. Okay, and there's lots of other. Luke 5, 16 says, Jesus often went to a lonely place to pray. So we see this pattern in Jesus' life. And let's um, go back to the Matthew 14 one. Just pause in that chapter for a minute. 
this is a day in the life of Jesus. So at the beginning of the chapter, he said, John the Baptist was beheaded. That's pretty awful, right? John's disciples came, took his body, and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. How was John connected to Jesus? Cousins. What else? John kind of paved the way for Jesus. Prepared the way. His forerunner. Sounds like he could have been an early mentor for Jesus. Early mentor. What other significant event in Jesus baptized Jesus? Baptized Jesus. So John was a significant person in the life of Jesus, right? I just read through this many times and not really thought about that. But if you think about it, John was probably the only person alive in the life of Jesus who sort of got him. His family thought he was crazy at times. His disciples sure didn't always get it. And the crowds were fickle. So John was probably the only one. He was a significant person in the life of Jesus. So this was a huge blow. So what does he do? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Why did he do that? What was that the first thing he did? He was sad. He was sad. He was grieving. This important person to him was being But the crowds followed, he had compassion, so he healed them. And Jesus' healing wasn't this one-and-done thing. Okay, y'all are healed. He interacted with people, didn't he? So this was when he healed them. He spent time with them. So that's a long day of healing. As evening approached, the disciples said, this is a remote place, then the crowds away, he said, let's heal and they knew the feeding of 5,000, another long thing. So you think about this day of Jesus with this hard news in the middle and then this full day of ministry. And then at the very end of this, immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat, go ahead of them to the other side and he dismisses out. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And then after the walking on the water and stuff. But we see this in the life of Jesus, his inclination with this hard thing. And in other times, because we see this pattern over and over and over, he went to the Father to pray. He was there with him alone. He spent the night in prayer. We see this over and over. His inclination was to be with the Father. And then the passage in in Luke 6, um, Henry Nowen has this article called Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry. Great article, Google it sometimes. <coughs> but he uses um, the Luke 6 verse where he spent the night in prayer and then chose the 12 disciples to show this pattern of Jesus moving from solitude to community to ministry. So what we often do is we get this idea for a ministry jump right in and do it and then we call other people to help us and then we pray. 
Jesus pattern was to start in solitude with the Father, listen to the Father, be with the Father, let the Father feed into you. Then you go out into community and then ministry. And what Nowen says is that the way we come to know God and the way we live into what God is doing is by this depth of time with God, where we're listening with God, we're leaning into God, we're being with God. And it's not where we're talking all the time. Being with God. Um, and again, just letting God fill us up. And I'm guessing that's how it was with Jesus, too. That Jesus wasn't talking all the time. He was with the Father. He was letting God fill him up. So the, the point I'm trying to make here is as we want to live into this, as we want to live into this way of being in the world, this way of being loved, we cannot do it on our own. We have to let the Father do it through us. And the way we do that is we spend time with And you know, that's such a logical thing, but it's hard, you know, to have quiet time out every day or get alone to be with God. But it's the way that we let go of the reins and the willpower to make ourselves who God wants to be. And we let God do the shaping. So we have to show up. We have to be there, but it's about God working through us. So let me close with this one um, reading. And we'll be done. This is by Evelyn Underhill. It's called Sheepdog. Now those sheepdogs that afternoon gave me a much better address on the way in which pastoral work amongst souls should be done than I shall be able to give you. They were helping the shepherd to deal with a lot of very active sheep and lambs, to persuade them into the right pastures to keep them from rushing down the wrong paths. And how does a successful dog do it? Not by barking, fuss, or ostentatious authority, any kind of busy behavior. The best dog that I saw never barked once, and he spent an astonishing amount of his time sitting perfectly still looking at the shepherd. The communion of spirit between them was perfect. They worked as a unit. Neither of them seemed anxious or in a hurry. Neither was committed to a rigid plan. They were always content to wait. That dog was a docile and faithful agent of another mind. He used his whole intelligence and initiative, but always in obedience to his master's directed will and was ever prompt at self-effacement. The little mountain sheep he had to deal with were amazingly tiresome. As expert in doubling and twisting and going the wrong way as any naughty little boy, the dog went steadily on with it and his tail never ceased to wag. What did that mean? It meant that his relation to the shepherd was the center of his life, and because of that, he enjoyed doing his job with the sheep. He did not bother about the trouble nor get discouraged with the apparent results. The dog had transcended mere doggyness. His actions were dictated by something right beyond himself. 
He was the agent of the shepherd, working for a scheme which was not his own, and the whole of which he could not grasp. And it was just that which was the source of the delightedness, the eagerness, and also the discipline with which he worked. But he would not have kept that peculiar and intimate relation unless he had sat down and looked at the shepherd of his tail. So let me close this in prayer. God, we know you are with us every moment, this moment, and we are grateful. So Lord, I ask for each of us that you give us the awareness, the prompts, to sit down and look at you a good deal. And God, we so desire to be your instruments of love in this hurting world. So bring that to our awareness, Lord, with each person you bring into our path. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.